so we're in Mark 11, starting in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what, believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word. <clears throat> Thanks be to God. Well, uh, we need God's word to understand who we are. We need God's word to understand uh, how to love him. So let's ask that he would teach us. Father, we pray that you would be with us by your word this morning. Pray that you would give us faith. Pray that you would give us hearts that are turned toward you. We ask all this, trusting that you will give it because you've promised to give it by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, one of the, probably the most famous scene from that Will Ferrell movie, The uh, Talladega Nights, is is when he's praying, right? And he prays to uh, dear tiny infant Jesus. His wife, of course, objects that that's kind of weird. She's right. But his response is, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus, or teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or whoever you want. Uh, it's an amazing scene, right? And it's funny, not because of the buffoonery of Ricky Bobby, though he's buffoonish through plenty of the movie. It's funny because it's pretty true about American religion, isn't it? And we just sort of have different takes on Jesus, and everybody has their own little version of Jesus that's made to cater to their image of him. Uh, we like a religion that's comfortable. We like a religion that affirms all the things we already like, all the ways we already like doing things. This section of the Gospel of Mark, now that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, is a critique of religion. 
from this moment that Jesus arrives through chapters 11, 12, and 13 is a sustained attack on the religious leaders. If you want to know one of the reasons why things go south over the course of this week while Jesus is in Jerusalem, a huge part of understanding that is understanding what Jesus has to say about false religion. If you want to know why that crowd that had been celebrating him the day before, within a few days, turns on him, you've got to see, and we're going to see it over, you know, however many weeks it is, I didn't look at the calendar, uh, that we're in these chapters, we're going to see a sustained reflection on false religion and on what it means to really worship the Lord. You ready for that? Uh, this week, Jesus is pointing out what fruitless religion is. What fruitless religion is. Fruitless religion is, well, fruitless in its worship, in its community, and in its faith. Fruitless in its worship, community, and faith. Now, you got to understand this, you got to understand this fig thing. I don't know if that made any sense to you, uh, but Jesus, as he's walking into town from the Mount of Olives, stops at this fig tree. Now, you got to know, in the Mediterranean, figs are very common. Everybody knows how fig trees work. And Jesus stops at this fig tree, and it's March. There's not going to be any figs growing on it. The passage goes out of the way to make sure you recognize this, right? That it's not the season for that. So Jesus goes to this fig tree not expecting to find fruit. And of course, he doesn't. And everybody knows he won't find fruit there. It's important to see that. He didn't just happen across a tree that should be bearing fruit that isn't, at least at that time. He, he intentionally seeks out this tree that he knows won't have any fruit on it. Then you also need to know another thing about fi the fig tree. It's a common metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament prophets. There's, I could give you a bunch of different references. A really helpful one would be Hosea 9, uh, verses 10 through 17. Eventually, he talks about Israel as being stricken. Their roots dried up, they shall bear no fruit. That's important. When Jesus curses this fig tree, anybody who's tuned into the Old Testament prophets recognizes something is going on here. And then at a literary level, one of the things that's so important to see, right, is that what happens in the temple is bookended by Jesus initially cursing the tree and then the disciples recognizing that it's cursed. In other words, it provides an interpretive frame for everything that happens in the temple. Jesus is cursing what goes on in the temple. Is that strong enough for you? It's bad news for them. 
This is a symbolic action meant to help us understand the problems at the core of the life of Israel. And Jesus walks into that temple, and we tend to focus on the action part, right? Jesus kicking people out, flipping tables. Imagine the coins kind of flying everywhere, uh, all the animals, you know, birds flying off and whatever other animals kind of scurrying away out of the temple. Um, But Jesus, when he starts teaching, right, he reminds them this place is supposed to be a house of prayer. And it's become something else. And it's helpful to understand, again, there's a little bit more info you need to get this picture, uh, how the temple was laid out. Some of you may know some of this. uh, But the temple proper, the temple, you know, as it is exactly is uh, defined, is a building with a courtyard around it. Now, that building has two rooms. It has an inner room, which is called the Holy of Holies. And back before the original temple was destroyed, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was really where God's presence met them. But only once a year did anybody even go in there. Once a year, the high priest went in. Now, the outer room, which was out to the east, uh, the outer room, the priest would go in but only the priests. Uh, Every day they would offer incense and that sort of thing. And then the courtyard that was surrounded it was where the sacrifices were made, where everybody would gather. You had to be ceremonially clean, but you you would gather and you would bring your sacrifice and there was all that, but that's where you would pray. But then this is something that's not part of the temple proper, but is often referred to with the temple, is the outer courtyard around that. And that's where you could kind of meet up with people and get, get some things done. Uh, that outer courtyard was really large, and that's where this market was set up. So it wasn't in the temple proper, but that outer courtyard was filled with all this hubbub, all this noise, all this mess. If you're selling animals, it's messy, right? We all know that. Uh, if it's, you know, if there's all this money changing hands and all these other things, you imagine there's a, a massive amount of noise being created just outside that courtyard. So that over top of the worship that's supposed to be going on in the temple proper, that outer courtyard is surrounding it, full of noise and smells. Hardly a worshipful experience for In fact, it must have been shocking to be there that afternoon when Jesus had thrown all these people out. And maybe for the first time in hundreds of years, it was quiet. Imagine that. It was actually a place you could stop and reflect. Stop you could, a place you could stop and pray. Now, there were sacrifices going on. I'm sure there's other things going on. But for the first time in maybe a very long time, it was a place of real reflection. You see, on the one hand, this is helpful. This is really important to see. On the one hand, they understood the rules well. The temple proper, they followed the rules just so. They crossed every T, dotted every I. But everything going on around it was chaos. 
So they had lost sight of the fact that the whole purpose of being there and of following the, the rules was to be worshipful. To actually be caught up in the beauty of God. The beauty of his holiness, as Psalm 96 says. And so a subtle shift had happened. A subtle shift had happened. They had lost focus on God's holiness and had come to focus more on theirs. You see, they come to focus more on we got to keep all the rules. But they had lost sight of the fact that you were there to see God's holiness. The demands of holiness to enter the, the temple proper were not there as an end in of themselves. They were there so that you could behold God in his holiness. And if you don't think this is a big deal, did you hear how the religious leaders responded in verse 18? They want to destroy him. This is the moment they decide they're going to kill Jesus. This is the moment it starts. The wheels of the plot start, start moving. They recognize that what Jesus is doing is indicting everything that they're about. And look, here's the thing. You had people, you know, Israel had been spread out all throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean at this point. People needed to change money because they would come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They needed to change money. They were on pilgrimage. They weren't going to bring animals uh, from the other side of the Mediterranean, right? They needed to, to buy them, but that didn't need to happen right outside the gate. It's a, subtle, it's a subtle but important thing to see that shift that it's about making sure I get all my stuff right and forget about God. We're not a very formal church in how we dress, but if you've ever been in a more formal church, uh, you know how this kind of logic goes, right, about how you, how you dress for church. You dress because God, you're celebrating God. But then you're also putting on your Sunday best, right? And there's a lot of attention paid to your Easter dress, there's a lot of attention paid to all these other things. And we like to think, well, we can kind of have our cake and eat it too. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be a more formal dress. I mean, okay, like, it's not a critique of that. There's a, we, can, we can have our own weird sense of holiness and in our informality. That's a problem. But you see how subtle these kinds of questions can be. That we're saying, we, we say we're talking about God. But what we're really interested in is how we look and, and in ourselves more than anything else. The focus is less on God and the beauty of his holiness and more on us putting on a show, on what we gain from being there, on making it look good. And so all kinds of clamor comes in, doesn't it? That's the number one sign that you've got a problem. If you use that illustration of how people dress, if it's a problem when somebody doesn't show up dressed just right, 
Maybe the problem's not with them. If that becomes a source of scandal. Maybe we've lost it. Again, we can have our own problems with that in informality, but you know, the 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 worship of God is supposed to be with reverence of awe, in awe. It's supposed to be in love with his holiness. And holiness doesn't mean just moral uprightness. God's holiness is his otherness. To be caught up into holiness is to be caught up with how great and incomprehensible God is. To be caught up in how his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways greater than our ways. It is to be caught up in a profound mystery. Of the one in whom we live and move and have our being. In that regard, of course, God's moral character is higher and different. And is part of his holiness. But it's not the focus. The focus is how profoundly different, how profoundly great God is. And that's the sort of thing we're supposed to be caught up in and worship. It's how great God is. And it's supposed to engage our heart and mind and our strength. Presbyterians love the mind stuff. I don't know how good we are about the heart and about putting all of our strength into it. I've seen some Pentecostals dance, and they're putting some strength into it. Don't ask me to dance them. Maybe one day I'll get over my Presbyterianism enough to actually enjoy dancing and worship, but that day is not today. It's also supposed to be joyful. And think about Psalm 98 or Psalm 100, about all the joy, I mean, the whole, the last, like, Five psalms are all about the joy of being in God's presence. Joy is supposed to be at the center of this. And the thing about joy, we actually talked about this some during Advent. The thing about joy is it is a deep delight in all that God is and all that he has done. And that's why joy is a little different than happiness. Happiness is about our circumstances. Happiness is about how I feel right in this moment, about what's going on around me about the situation I'm caught in. Joy is a thing that buoys you up. Even in the midst of trials and of loss, even in the midst of lament. Joy is about knowing the one who is great beyond all measure. Who holds you in the palm of his hand. That's exactly what you can't do when you go to worship and there's a loud market all around you, is find that kind of quiet. Find that kind of reflection. You can sing for joy loudly and be able to honor him in reverence and all. Because it focuses our attention. And what Jesus is putting his finger on is how much that has been lost in the shuffle, literally in the shuffle of the crowd that you had to elbow your way through to actually get to the temple. (laughs) 
But it's also, and Jesus puts his finger on this, a fruitless community. And this is where it gets even more pointed. Because that outer courtyard where all the market was set up, kind of surrounding the temple proper, was also sometimes called the courtyard of the Gentiles. Because anybody could go there. It was the place where you could catch a glimpse of the greatness of God, even if you weren't an Israelite. This is why Jesus, when he talks about it being a house of prayer, he quotes from Isaiah 56. To be a house of prayer for all people. It's so important to understand this. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a theme that is deeply connected to what Israel is. That while Israel is chosen and distinct from the other nations, it is meant to be a blessing to all the nations. It goes back to Abraham himself. It goes back to the very moment God called Abraham in Genesis 12, right? That I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That the whole point of Jesus or of God selecting Israel, choosing Israel, was in order to do something that would bless all the nations. This continues. I mean, you go, you go back to, if you go into Exodus, there's another theme in Exodus when the people are delivered out of, out of Egypt that what God is doing in and through and with Israel is meant to be a testimony to the nations about how great he is. In fact, after the Red Sea is closed up on Pharaoh's armies, in Exodus 15, they sing a song. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard and tremble. The nations have heard and tremble. And again, this is a theme that goes... If you're paying attention throughout the whole of the Old Testament, you know, straight into Isaiah 56, which Jesus quotes from, he's, this, is, this is a little bit more of it. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The point is that Jesus is frustrated that those who have come to see the greatness of the Lord can't see it. Because Israel has filled up that whole courtyard with their money changing and their purchases, purchasing of animals, this, this market has crowded out the nations. They have forgotten this essential aspect of the calling of Israel to be a blessing to the nations. 
Now, look, we're, I know we are touching on a number of sensitive issues. Uh, so it's important to say a few things here. Jesus is not anti-Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. Every apostle is Jewish. Everybody who writes the New Testament, except maybe Luke, is Jewish. <laughs> like, th- this, is, this is an internal debate, if you like, uh, within Israel. Jesus' critique is from the inside. And in fact, everybody, including the New Testament authors, thought that when, what we're looking at with Israel was humanity's last best hope. God had called Israel out, given them his law. If anyone would be able to make it, it would be Israel. And this is part of the point, is that even Israel can't do it. Not that the Gentile nations were better. No, none of them thought that. They're saying that even Israel, with what it had been given, couldn't do it. And Israel itself was never even a strictly racial or ethnic identity. You can go back and see all throughout the Old Testament people who converted into the faith. They're, they're actually all over the place. You don't, we don't necessarily have a lot of illustrations of how they came to faith, but we see them all over the place. Because you know how we gloss over the ending of people's names? It's like Uriah the Hittite, whatever that means, right? He's not an Israelite. I mean, he is now, you know, at the time of the story, right? Like he has come to faith, but he wasn't. That's an identity of a different nation. There's all, there's all these different people like that that keep popping up all throughout the Old Testament. Even in Jesus' line, there's Rahab, who was a Canaanite. There's Ruth, who was a Moabite. Other enemies of, of Israel. I mean, this was never even, a strictly speaking, a racial identity. We can go on and on about that. The point is this, that God's plan had always been for the nations, it had always been multi-ethnic. It had always been cross-cultural. And what Jesus is saying is Israel has forgotten it. Now look, I am sure if you walked around the temple with Jesus and you asked somebody, would you like the nations to know about how great the Lord is? Of course they'd say yes. Of course they would. The point is they just never thought about it. They just never thought about what it would take. And in this regard, the church ought to stop and reflect deeply. Because the church is the embodiment of this. And it is a theme all throughout the New Testament. And especially, especially in the letters of Paul, that what Jesus has done is brought Jew and Gentile together in himself. That Jesus has come to create a church that is a cross-cultural reality. Crossing lines of racial and ethnic, economic, social and political, whatever those lines are, to bring them together. And we run the risk often in the church of forgetting this. 
We have forgotten often in the church. You know, it's it's an old adage, right, that the most divided hour in the country is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And you know how this is. Churches, you know, we tend to be similar socioeconomic level. They certainly tend to be homogeneous in their ethnic identity. And we're not above that. We're definitely not above that. And I'm not... The point isn't that everything we're doing is wrong. The point is, how do we intentionally make space for others who don't look exactly like us, who don't have our background? Do we show any intentionality? That's the question. It's a hard question, isn't it? Because we want a group that's like us. You know, there's all, these, there's all these southern sayings that kind of mix Jesus and southern culture together, right? Uh, you know, I was raised on Jesus and sweet tea. You can find that in all kinds of roadside um, t-shirts. You can find that, you, you know, you're American by birth, southern by the grace of God. And all that's, I, I know, right, it's all good. I, I know it's all supposed to be funny. Uh, and it, and it is, <laughs> to some level. I mean, you've got to have a good laugh about that. But on the other hand, right, we can easily communicate very subtly, even in our humor, that we don't make room for other people. That can look different in different places. I pick on the South because we're in the South. Uh, it can, you know, we communicate this, again, in how we dress. We communicate this in all sorts of subtle ways. We communicate it in what we talk about as the normal Christian experience. But what we're called to do is make room. To make room for others who are different. And the reality is... We will have to one day. We can either start doing that now or have to do it, (laughs) all of it, (laughs) one day because that's the vision of the new heavens and the new earth is a people that's made up of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. No church can accomplish this by itself. So listen, I'm not trying to say we've got to do everything right here as one small church in Charleston, South Carolina. (laughs) We can't. But we can start. And we can start somewhere. Because that is what Jesus is doing. That is what the church is really meant to be. That is what God's kingdom does look like. And one day we will wake up and realize it. The third aspect of fruitless faith or fruitless religion is the faith itself being fruitless. You notice that morning, the next morning, as they're walking back into Jerusalem, how Peter sees the tree is withered to its roots. That's where we get the bookend. And Jesus' response, though, is a little strange. 
Jesus doesn't explain what he's talking about. He's obviously going to let them connect the dots symbolically about the tree. But his response is, have faith in God. That the, the, the problem with Israel at its core was that they didn't really have faith. They weren't really trusting the Lord. They were trusting in themselves, which is why the focus of their worship was themselves and their holiness, which is why they didn't think about the other nations, because they were focused on themselves. Again, I, I'm sure that there were some who were faithful. Let's be clear about that. We actually meet some people like this along the way. Uh, think about when Jesus is presented in the temple when he's a baby. And Simeon, he's been waiting there his whole life. Uh, waiting to celebrate as an old man. Now, there are some who have faith, but Jesus is painting with a broad brush. And what he finds is a tremendous lack of faith. And then he tells them, look... The fix, so he's communicating to them, look, the fix is not just clean up the courtyard. He goes back to the temple. We're going to see this next week. He goes back to the temple. He doesn't clear it out again. All that stuff probably just started back up the next day. I'm sure they were back. They have every incentive to come back, you know, as long as they're not going to get thrown out again. Uh, they're, They're back at it. The solution is not simply to chase them away or get rid of a few bad apples. The solution has to be inside out. It's in what they have faith in. And he gives two litmus tests. Now, I don't know if this is, I wouldn't say this is the all-inclusive list. There are probably other things we could say, but Jesus on this occasion points out two things that prove our faith. How we pray and how we forgive. Do you notice that? Verses 23 through 25. How we pray and how we forgive. He talks about prayer in a way that's kind of surprising. You know, first off, you've got to recognize, one of the reasons you know Jesus is talking about something that's inside out is because he starts talking about prayer, which feels like the most unproductive thing you can do with your time, if we're being honest. I know you're not supposed to say that, but you know that's how you felt many times when you sat down to pray and you have other things on your mind and other things you think you're supposed to be doing and all these other things. I'm just thinking, okay, well, let me just kind of get through this and don't be on my way. It feels unproductive. But Jesus promises great things. You can say to this mountain, be moved and thrown into the sea and it'll be done. Now, because Jesus has just passed judgment on the Temple Mount, and that's where they're walking to, a lot of modern commentators think he's talking about, he's saying, you know, that mountain, even the Temple itself, you could ask that it be cast into the sea. I'm not really sure. Uh, But (laughs) either way, what's important to understand here is the context is one of prayer, not of naked power. It's important that Jesus is talking about this in the context of prayer because, you see, Jesus is not saying that, look, if you want any random thing you want, if you just want it enough, then God's going to give it to you. 
like it's the secret or whatever sort of snake oil thing is going around. You know, like it's not, this is not the secret. If you just want it enough, if you just focus on it enough, you'll get it. No, if you focus on God enough, see the difference? If you stop and wait on the Lord long enough, if you focus your attention on him, I mean, this is what prayer does is focuses our hearts so that the things we actually want are changed. So it is less a kind of laundry list of, you know, Christmas items we want for the year, less an item of all the different situations we want fixed just so in this way and that, and more about the things that he is interested in. Then we, when we pray that way, then we are learning what it's like to want what he wants. And the more our prayer is in alignment with the values of his kingdom, the more we will see it answered. Because God hasn't promised what grade you're going to get on that test. I don't know. I mean, pray about it. He doesn't say don't pray about the things that are on your heart. But this promise is not for any random thing that you have going on. This is about our hearts being aligned. That is why prayer is a litmus test of faith. Because it is an act of trust. It is an act of aligning ourselves with him. And the other one is forgiveness, which has, you know, doesn't get a lot of airtime. Uh, we talk about repentance, I think, in Presbyterian circles a lot. We don't talk about forgiveness a lot, but it has an unsettling way of cropping up over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. And I think we just kind of assume everybody knows what forgiveness is. And we do not have enough time for me to unpack everything in, in the idea of forgiveness. But, you know, there are a lot of bad ideas. It's not letting somebody off the hook. You know, so it's kind of, it's become a kind of open question, I think, in society, whether, that, whether forgiveness is a good idea, because we're thinking about it primarily as just letting somebody off the hook. Or some of us think forgiveness is forgiving and forgetting. And then, so moving on and pretending like nothing ever happened. Or, or forgiveness is at least sort of minimizing the problem. It's not as big a deal as I think it is. I'm going to keep telling myself that. And forgiveness has nothing to do with evading the truth in any of those ways. Nothing to do with it. But it is important. Anne Lamott says, you know, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. The way Paul puts it, if you like that a little better, in Ephesians 4, is your options are forgiveness or bitterness. Those are the two options. And we imagine there's some way of thinking like, well, I'm just going to stay mad at that person. I'm just going to stay upset and just keep moving on. And Paul is saying, no, 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 if you do that, you will sink into bitterness. Those are your options. The reality is, the more you are stuck in unforgiveness, the more controlled you are by what was committed against you. 
because you're still just as controlled by it. Now, real forgiveness doesn't mean letting somebody continue in evil. It doesn't mean foregoing justice. It doesn't mean automatically trusting somebody. What it does mean is giving an honest assessment of an evil committed. That's the starting point, is an honest assessment. And we're bad at this. Can we just admit that? We're bad at this. Because I like to take the smallest things and make a really big deal out of them. The smallest little issue, the smallest little slight, and make a mountain out of that. And the strangest thing is, some of the deepest and darkest sins are some of the hardest, on the other hand, to look square in the face. It's hard to come to terms with what has happened in some situations. So we're not good at it. But that is the beginning of forgiveness, is that kind of honesty, which is why forgiveness, in some sense, is a process, right? Because it takes time to start to fully understand what has gone on. And I'm not talking about just some little white lie between you and a friend, but when something really deep and hurtful and impactful has happened, it takes time to figure that out, to sort through all those things. But what follows, the next step of, of forgiveness, is a determination not to punish the person. Not to take, I should say this, not to take punishment into your own hands. I think there is still a place for justice in some situations, for sure. There is a place uh, for remembering what had happened. That's definitely for sure. But, not, but determining that you're not going to be the person that takes punishment into your own hands. Along with that means pursuing tenderheartedness. This is how Paul, again, talks about it in Ephesians 4. Is being tenderhearted towards the other person. Even if they were hard-hearted toward you. You see, in that regard, forgiveness, you can see why it's a true litmus test. It is a telltale sign of someone who has started to understand grace for themselves. You know, it doesn't mean that you recognize that you would have done the same thing. I mean, maybe not. I mean, there's some things. But you do recognize that you are a sinner. And that there are other things that you are just as susceptible to. It recognizes that it is better to be tender-hearted toward another than to be hard-hearted. And more than anything else, it it's a recognition of the power of the forgiveness you've been given. Perhaps for different things. Perhaps you haven't actively done some of the, these sorts of things, but you recognize the power of the forgiveness you've been given. And you want to see that unleashed in someone else's life. There's so much more to unpack about forgiveness. We'll have to do that some other time. We'll talk about that Ephesians 4 passage in our Ephesians class. Sometimes, so we can talk more about that as we go. But 
It does make me think as we kind of, I mean, there's a lot here for us to think about undertaking as a church. It's a big task. So what would it take for us to actually be convinced to pursue a fruitful religion? What would it take to convince us, really, that forgiveness is the better path? It would take someone laying down their life for us. What would it take to convince us that prayerfully submitting ourselves would be the better way? Trusting in the Lord would be the better way. He would have to lay down his life for us. What would it take to convince us that it is better to pursue those who are different than us, even those who are our enemies, than if Jesus laid down his life for us? And what would it take, us, take for us to see the beauty of God's holiness? What would it take for us to really have a glimpse in that? But for him to lay his life down for us. You see, the trick is not to be overwhelmed by the task, but to be focused on the one who has already done all of these things for us and who will equip us for the future, will equip us for what lies ahead so that we can take it one step at a time and move in that direction with confidence convinced that it is better to be caught up into the beauty of God's holiness than in our own. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would lay on our hearts the tasks that lie ahead of us, to lay on our hearts the things we need to do. But more than that, I pray that you would Give us a joy and excitement for the task. Consciences that aren't burdened with guilt, but charged with excitement. Because we know what Jesus has done for us. And we want to be about his kingdom. Give us that desire, we pray in his name. Amen.